Good evening, everyone. It is a pleasure for me to be here to introduce this event. My name is Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the LSC, which is why I get this pleasure. And it's a great one because we honor a distinguished uh, friend of the LSE, Clifford Barclay. We're pleased to have several members of the Barclay family, and we invite one of our most distinguished contemporary faculty members to speak. The Clifford Barclay Memorial Lectures at the LSE honor a man who was an entrepreneur, a financier, and a governor of the school for many years. His son, Stephen Barclay, is now also a governor of the school and has helped make this program possible. Over the years, the series has hosted many distinguished professors in the school and given them an opportunity to speak perhaps more broadly about their subject than they would normally do. This doesn't actually apply to Mick Cox, who always speaks broadly about his subject, but it has applied often in the past. Tonight, we welcome, as I said, Professor Michael Cox, founding co-director of LSE Ideas and professor of international relations. In 2004, Nick Cox helped establish the Cold War Studies Center, and in 2008, Ideas, a foreign policy center based at the LSE with the aim of bringing the academic and policy worlds together. In a 2012 international survey, Ideas was ranked fourth in the world among the best university-affiliated think tanks. Since joining the LSE, Mick Cox has also acted as academic director of both the LSE Peking University Summer School and the Executive Summer School here in London. These are both remarkable successes for the LSE, and we're grateful. In 2011, Mick Cox launched a new executive master's in global strategy designed to teach senior foreign policy practitioners to think more strategically, and in fact reaching people across a variety of fields to join in this effort to understand directions of global change. Professor Cox is a well-known speaker on global affairs and has lectured in the United States, Australia. He just gave the inaugural LSE University of Melbourne lecture, Asia, and in the EU. He has spoken on a range of contemporary global issues, though most recently he has focused on the role of the United States in the international system, the rise of Asia, and whether or not the world is now in the midst of a major power shift. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE power shift. As usual after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Cox who usually becomes even more fun at that point. <laughs> but in the meantime, <laughs> let me invite you to join me in welcoming Professor Cox to deliver his lecture entitled Power Shift, The Rise of the West and the Decline of the West, Facts, Myths, and Economists. <laughs> Thank you for that very nice introduction, Craig, and thank you for all coming along uh, this evening. Um, firstly, some official thanks uh, to the Barclay family uh, for hosting this, uh, this lecture this year and for asking me to give it. Uh, to Craig Calhoun for chairing it. Uh, it's quite frightening doing a lecture in front of your boss. At least this is not a job interview. Um, and finally, and maybe most importantly of all, thank you to the 
to the London School of Economics uh, for, bri- for providing me and many, many other people here uh, with an intellectual home at which I have felt much at home. Now, the one thing the LSE does well, I have found, more so than probably any other place I've ever been to, um, is argue and disagree. Partly this is hardwired, I think, into the LSE tradition in some senses when the school was created in the late 19th century by the Webbs and others, it was really in disagreement with the status quo. So it started as an argument. Um, And you could say it's the only, or one of the only social science, not the only social science institution in in this country, and maybe elsewhere, you could say that what social sciences is really about is, is argument and disagreement. I would also make another point here quickly that there's no more argumentative, dare I even say disagreeable subject (laughs) within the field of social sciences than international relations. Um, It was born out of an argument about the origins of World War I, which we will be commemorating next year, and its aftermath, and how to build a new world order after World War I, the League of Nations. It continued shouting at each other this time about why the peace following World War I failed. Two of the giants, if you wish, of international relations were some of the most argumentative human beings you're ever likely to meet. Uh, Edward Halleck Carr, who wrote the famous 20 Years Crisis in 1939, a polemic if ever there was one, which took very few prisoners. And Hans J. Morgenthau, who wrote After the War, Politics Among Nations. And IR continued to complain, moan, disagree after the end of World War II about how to rebuild the world economy. The argument then continued. The origins of the Cold War. Who is to blame? The Americans or the Russians? Why did the Cold War remain cold? Was it nukes? Was it economics? Why did it last for so long? Why did we fail to predict its end, including me? because we did not understand the USSR or could not envisage change. And we certainly could not agree about the causes of things, the causes of its end. I love our our slogan, if you like, the causes of things. It begs the question, which cause? Who, Who is the cause? What is the cause? In fact, the more you look at 1989 and the end of the Cold War, I've identified at least six theories, some of them probable, some very unlikely and one or two true, and at least five personal favourites. Ronald Reagan, if you're a Republican, a declining breed in the United States these days, I'm told. Mikhail Gorbachev, if you're a Social Democrat. Mrs. Thatcher, if you're a Tory. Helmut Kohl, if you're a member of the CDU. And if you're Polish, you can choose the Pope. In other words, when we even get to something as clear about the world as the end of the Cold War, we can't really agree about what caused it, why we failed to predict it, and which of those five individuals may have played the key role in bringing it about. So much argument, so much disagreement, and to a degree, this argument and disagreement has gone on ever since, about a whole host of new issues, if you wish. 
humanitarian intervention, the role of the UN, state collapse, what is a failed state, what to do with a failed state, terrorism, what to do about terrorism, and within the United States in particular, American foreign policy, what should it be, where should it go, should it go anywhere, has it gone too far everywhere, should it retreat even into isolationism. So discussion and debate goes on. But what I want to suggest to you, provocatively I hope, is that for the last quarter of a century, or 20 years at least, there's been a consensus of sorts out of all this on one big issue, maybe the biggest issue of all, the world system. The way I look at the last 20 years, uh, to paraphrase Charles Dickens, is a tale of two decades. A tale of two decades. Decade number one, about which I think there is broad agreement, the 1990s. The West had won, for different reasons possibly, depending on your theory about why communism failed or whether capitalism won, whether it was democracy or NATO, but the West had won, whatever the cause or causes of that. Liberalism had triumphed, not everywhere, but in broad terms historically it had. Globalisation may have been challenged by a few people, but overwhelmingly it drove everything before it, reshaping foreign policy choices, reshaping political choices, and reshaping economic strategies. The new Europe was on the rise, pushing east, where the east adopted new market economics and political forms very much associated with the west. NATO also began a process of enlargement to the East more rapidly, more, more easily and more quickly than that of the expansion of the EU. But again, you could hardly conclude from that that the West had lost, quite the reverse. The West, in some senses, uh, was on the march. And perhaps most central to this new narrative, or this post-Cold War narrative, into which I think the overwhelming majority of writers and pundits uh, bought, was this. The US did not do what other great powers had traditionally done, decline. <laughs> it had done the opposite. It had proved that exceptionalism as a general understanding of America now applied to America as a great world power. It wasn't doing an Ottoman Empire. It certainly wasn't doing what the British did so politely, decline. <laughs> it was doing the opposite. It was reviving. There was a renaissance. American influence, American ideas, American economic thought, Americanization itself, this now seemed unrivaled. US power seemed unchallengeable. IR even came up with an ugly word to describe it, the unipolar moment. If you remember, in February of 1941, the then editor or owner or both of Time magazine, a few months before America entered the war, World War II, talked of a new American century. That was Edward Luce. Now, 50 years later, coming up to the turn of the millennium, Luce became popular yet again. Luce had talked of the 20th century being American. Now, a very large number were talking of another American century, except this wasn't going to be the 20th, it was going to be the 21st. This was a moment 
of 10 years of optimism, of the triumphant march of the market, and to some degree of the spread of Western economic and to some degree political values. And no power in the world had ever looked quite like the United States. The world was indeed out of balance. Many thought this was problematic. Some didn't like it, largely because they didn't like the United States. Many thought it could not last. But most writers, to be perfectly frank, whether realists or liberals, thought this was a peculiarly significant moment which would last for a very long time. Even the French foreign minister was moved to say that this wasn't just an ordinary superpower, this was a hyperpuissance, a hyperpower. That's the first decade. Contrast this with where many would claim, and indeed suggest quite strongly, where we are today, 10, 11, 12 years on. The noughties. All change. One setback after another. The global war on terror, with all of its implications, both morally and in terms of the overreach of the United States, particularly in the war in Iraq. From the popular, but possibly morally flawed Mr. Clinton, to the unpopular and very moral G.W. Bush. Never had so much unpopularity been heaped on one man in history, possibly. Certainly no American. Not only did American strategy burn and crash in Iraq, as Toby Dodge has put it, so do did G.W. Bush's popularity in Europe and around large parts of the world, along with it, a large amount of soft power. In 2003 and 2004, a number of writers, including myself, wrote at length on the transatlantic disarray, largely caused by the Iraq war. Can you remember back that far, ten years ago? We had meetings here on that particular subject. So it looked like the West was divided, as much as America was becoming increasingly unpopular. And then came the European crash and the ongoing crisis in the Eurozone from which we have not yet escaped. Along came a combination of Mary Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi in the shape of Obama. He lifted the gloom for a while. But if you were to look today at what people are saying, even his friends, he's always had so many enemies, I don't listen to them, but even his friends are now talking of a failing president who has let down his own followers on, on the left, liberals, and indeed over Syria demonstrated his indecision, which in turn has undermined, it is argued, American credibility, weakened its relationship with allies like France, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And indeed the failure, as it is perceived by some over Syria, it says, is having a knock-on effect right around the world. In a recent discussion in Southeast Asia and Singapore, the point was made, his indecision over Syria, what will he do if the Chinese try and grab hold of the Senkaku and Dayu Islands? North and South Korea, where's the credibility gone? Again, you get, you get the point. You get the point. Time magazine, again, the same Time magazine, captured the mood well in an editorial telling phrase 
The period between 1900, uh, 2000, 2010 rather, sorry, was, quote-unquote, the decade from hell. Bookended by 9-11 at one end and financial wipeouts at the other. A tale of two decades. Yet, in a way, this was only half the story. Uh, A tale of two decades, as I've argued, but it also became a tale of two worlds. Hell for some, but not for others. One world was now portrayed as being on the way down, the Western world. Another world, which was not traditionally Western, was portrayed as being on the way up, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis. One world, the West, where there was gloom and doom. Another, where there was a new sense of confidence, even in some countries, I would argue, hubris. One world that quickly got over the economic crisis of 2008 and another that seemed trapped by it. One world, the old western world as it's defined, that seemed to represent the past, history if you like, and another, a new rising world that seemed to represent the future. And one world whose axis had in the 1980s and the 1990s been somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, its economic axis, somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, and 20, 25 years later, that economic axis had fast shifted to Asia. The argument obviously strongly associated with the ideas of my dear friend and colleague here, Danny Kua. What was equally striking about this narrative of two worlds, not just two decades, but two worlds, was how quickly the majority of pundits, writers, opinion formers, policymakers even, signed up to it. Indeed, to the whole idea of what was now being routinely and regularly being talked of of an irreversible power shift from west to east, and even from north to south. Liberals, conservatives, and indeed even some economists signed up to this particular uh, argument and idea. The list grew as the decade went on. John Eikenberry, good liberal theorist from Princeton, A theorist of unipolarity in the 1990s now becomes the new theorist of power shift. Neil Ferguson, I had to bring in Neil of course, apologist for empire in the early part of the decade, indeed lecturing the United States on what it could learn from the British, now became the prophet of gloom and doom. The new Oswald Spengler of Harvard. Amitav Acharya, famous, well-known writer on, from Southeast Asia, just written a book with the words, Decline of the West, 
firmly, boldly, in the title. Kishori Mabubani, who's written very much from Singapore on this whole question. And to that you could add a possibly even more august list, HSBC Bank. They bought into it. The Australian government, which was mentioned earlier on. The British Foreign Office. All have bought into, or at least accepted, what I think has become the new narrative, the new truth, the new, the new dominant argument about a power shift which is moving everything away from where it used to be to where many now claim it is heading or indeed has already arrived. Now, there have been different responses to the same accepted or perceived trend. Some writers, of course, were not surprised at all, including our very dear friend, dear friend of ideas, Paul Kennedy. Paul, of course, had predicted this back in 1987 when he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. As we know, Kennedy's thesis went on holiday for 15 or so years during the 1990s. It didn't look like the United States was in decline when it liberated Iraq rather successfully and speedily in 1990-1991. It didn't look like American decline given the military gap that opened up between the US and the rest of the world in the 1990s. It didn't look like American economic decline given eight years of economic growth under Bill Clinton. It didn't look like US decline. However, if you wait long enough, it will come round. And Paul, a very fine, fine friend of ours and a great historian, almost in relief in an article written in World Today in 2010 said, aha, it's come back. <laughs> and of course, for many, the rise of the rest, as to use that term, popularized by Farid Zakaria, uh, was not, for some at least, the same thing as the decline of the West or the decline of the United States. And indeed, it was the, the popular and influential Farid Zakaria, in his book Post American World, published in 2008, who made the point that the rise of the rest should not be identified with the decline of the West or indeed the decline of the United States, certainly not Paul Kennedy's view, who actually did think this was decline in relative terms. Some indeed welcomed this uh, shift, this economic shift and presumed political shift, away from the traditional centres of power. Indeed, if you follow the argument through in good LSE social democratic logic, if you want to use that phraseology, there's something very redistributionist about a power shift. After all, if economic power and political power is moving away from the traditional established centres of power, which surround the Atlantic largely, it's moving somewhere else, isn't this therefore not a good thing? After all, those who were once poor are now becoming less poor. Those who always assume backwardness are now becoming rich. Why should we, the white, Europeans and white Americans largely call all the shots for the rest of the world and for all time forever. We've had 400 years of doing it, why another 400 years? So I think there is an argument that in terms of a redistributionist logic, you could make the case, and I think some welcomed it precisely for, for that reason. Some indeed, like Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs, 
who might turn out to be the most important IR theorist of the noughties. I hate to say that, but there you go. Some merely thought this was economically inevitable, and actually economically very good for world capitalism. And as, of course, 2008 hit us unexpectedly, the engines of world growth, as Danny and Quar and others have pointed out, did begin to shift eastward towards China. So if you go to church on a Sunday, give a prayer for the Chinese Communist Party for pulling the world economy along and with it Asia and by doing so pulling along the world capitalist system. An 84 million Communist Party comes to the, comes to the rescue of world capitalism. Discuss. <laughs> Some, however, were obviously patently worried too about this power shift. It wasn't always a rosy story. Not everybody's a Jim O'Neill and not everybody in the world, of course, is a social democrat. There is what I would call, if I can, I, know, I don't quite know how to put this, but there's what I call an end of civilization brigade out there who kind of think that uh, 2,000 years of history has been made by a Christian Europe and then was remade anew uh, by an even more Christian America after World War II. And this is the way the world is and should be, and that is what constitutes civilization. This idea of things moving around, going somewhere else, to different kinds of peoples with different kinds of skin colours and perhaps different kinds of cultures and backgrounds and different kinds of food even. Is this not the end of civilization as we know it? But there was a more serious argument, and this sort of turned, led to the whole question of China. And you can certainly clearly detect, and not only not only in the United States, but primarily in the United States, and also to a very large degree in Asia itself, a sense that whatever good China's doing economically, however many people in poverty are being dragged out of poverty, however many goods, iron ore, coal, that China buys from Australia, thus keeping the Australian economy buoyant, however much trade it does with its Asian neighbours, including Japan, the rise of China constitutes a problem. For one of two reasons. For one of two reasons. Either because China can now tell its own story about the world, what has been called the new Beijing consensus, to challenge the Washington consensus. This is very much the argument of a book written by Stephen Halper called the Beijing Consensus, the new Beijing Consensus. China can now tell a credible story to many parts of the world, particularly after the financial crisis of 2008. And that story is not going to be about liberalism, human rights, democracy, and all those things that the West has historically been associated with. Or, if you get a power shift, and students of IR will know this very well, when power shifts, conflicts increase. That's the kind of general theorem. It goes back a long way uh, to Thucydides, in fact, but I'm not going to go into that. But that's the general theory of war, power shift, the power of Athens, perceived fear in Sparta. But you could translate that into, in a sense, most of modern history. The rise of France, the challenge to the status quo, Napoleonic War, the rise of Germany, World War I and World War II, the rise of Japan, World War II, the rise of the Soviet Union, the origins of the Cold War. You don't need anything else. 
But there is a general understanding, at least by a certain branch of IR, particularly what I call the hyper-realists, um, the real muscular guys, that this, in a way, has to be accepted as part and parcel of what happens in international orders, and when that power transition happens, there's bound to be increased conflict between a rising power challenging the status quo power, and as the hegemon, the previously rising, the previous power declines, then you will get into, you will get into a, a power conflict. John Mearsheimer, again a good friend, University of Chicago, in his tragedy of great power politics, is quite clear about this. It's not that he just was terribly anti-Chinese, in fact he's not, in fact he's highly popular in China, he goes there all the time lecturing. Um, it is not that he particularly thinks it's about the Communist Party, in fact as a good old realist he thinks domestic politics don't really count, it's about power. And if powers rise and other powers decline, and he thinks clearly China's rising, this is bound to increase security dilemmas in the region, possibly even greater conflict. And many would say that Mearsheimer's prediction is now coming true, given the turbulence we are now seeing in Asia. So different responses to the same perceived trend. Some less surprised, some relieved, um, some not identifying it with decline, some welcoming it as a redistribution of world economic power, some merely thinking it was economically inevitable and for the, and for the public good, the world good, but however some clearly worrying about it. There's many ways to deal with this whole question of power shift and the rise of the rest and possibly the decline of the West. Now, what I've tried to do in some of my own work on this um, has been, in great LSE tradition, to be argumentative. Um, to challenge what I think is something of an emerging consensus on this question. Um, maybe to make myself unpopular, um, but so far uh, nobody's thrown anything at me yet, and please don't start tonight. Um, my response is of a rather different order. It partly asks the question, is it true? I kind of go back to basics, if you wish. Uh, how much of what has now become accepted wisdom, uh, I think by the overwhelming majority of pundits and, and then the others, not all, but the majority. The first thing I'm bound to ask is, is this empirically actually true? Or at least, is there a different way of reading the world other than the way that world is now being read and narrated by a very large number of modern writers, from a Neil Ferguson to a John Eikenberry, from Jim O'Neill uh, to our good friend Danny Kwan. Is it true in the way it has been represented, namely as an irreversible shift in power that will continue into the middle of the 21st century, away from the West and the Atlantic, and even away from the USA, towards somewhere or something else? So I started getting argumentative about this about three years ago, and I can't quite understand why. Largely, I think, it's because I'm rather an argumentative person. I raised three questions, and those are the three questions I will deal with in the rest of the lecture. And I'll put it like this. There's been an enormous focus on how much has changed, 
uh, over the last 10 years. Indeed, I'd say a large part of that narrative has been about change, shifting, movement, west to east, the decline of the hegemon. We're moving into a post-hegemonic phase. America has seen its best days. Pew Research talked from a hegemon to a declining power. Even Americans think America's in decline, according to public opinion surveys, which, of course, I very rarely read and very often don't believe. But there's been much focus on change, but I think there's been much less on the rather duller problem of what has not changed. This isn't an argument for the status quo before suddenly I get attacked for being a Western imperialist apologist, by the way. It's simply trying to judge the new narrative against one of the, some of the things which I think still need to be disputed and discussed. Uh, the second question I raise, and we'll try to do so in the course of the next 20 minutes or so, is what I think is an imprecise use of words. And perhaps I'll be guilty of that as well tonight, equally. Um, but an imprecise use of the word power, and indeed shift, if it implies a major change in the balance of power in the world. I'm not so convinced. I'm a sceptic. At least I want to ask questions about what many others regard as being obvious. And I suppose the last point I want to raise, maybe the most controversial of all, but possibly therefore the most interesting by definition, is does this add up to the decline of the West, the eclipse of the West, as indeed many now assume it to be happening? In 2001 and 2002 and 2003, you couldn't go through, a, through an airport without buying a book with the word empire in it, particularly attached to the word America. And then we had a two or three or four year debate about empire. Now, it's all about the eclipse and the decline of the West. I call it the Spengler moment, going back to Oswald Spengler's great works, almost unreadable, by the way. Uh, which he put out in the, in the 1920s about the decline of the West. Yeah. But does it all add up to the eclipse of the West, the decline of the West? What do we mean when we use that term? And that's what I want to try to interrogate. So let me deal with each of those areas in turn. What has not changed? What do we mean when we say the balance of power is shifting? And does this add up to the decline of the West? Firstly, what has not changed? Again, I venture into the areas uh, terra incognita of the economists, but I won't apologise. I've come up with a few facts. Even I found these. First thing I found was the United States, surprise, surprise, still remains the world's largest economy. Um, now, in relative terms, you may say that since 1945 it isn't, in relative terms, quite as big as it was back in 1945, because 1945 was a rather exceptional year, because America was 75% of the world economy, point taken. But there's been a kind of consistent 22, 23, 24% world GDP. Even in those simple, crude, quantitative GDP terms, the United States has a lot of what we call the world economy. And that doesn't even begin to enter into 
more qualitative issues. In fact, I actually think that some the measurements of world economic power in purely GDP terms, and I'd say this is a non-economist, but it strikes me as being problematic, in itself may be problematic, purely GDP. It measures simply size. It doesn't do very much else. It's important. It's not insignificant. As Jim O'Neill said, I study big economies. You can do Denmark. <laughs> so I get the point. I get the point. But even in those crude quantitative terms, the United States still remains the largest economy. And it still remains, in many ways, in my view, the point of reference for all other economies in the world. We can discuss that. I could go into other aspects of the US economy, its innovative capacities, its technological innovation. And you can fail in America and still come back, which, again, is not insignificant. One could go on. I won't. You get my point. It's about twice the size of the Chinese economy, by the way, and if you take per capita income, it's about six times higher than Chinese average living standards. If you're going to make those kinds of comparisons, which quite often get lost in the focus in on the rise of Asia or the emergence and rise of China. It's still very, very, very big. Secondly, there's been an enormous discussion and debate, quite legitimate and right, on the rising Asian economy, by why Asia is becoming the axis of the new world economic system, why the future will belong to Asia. Jim O'Neill and Kishori Mabubani at another level have both, in a sense, predicted that by the middle of the 21st century, the world economy will largely, although not entirely, revolve around at least two of the big Asian economies, China, number one, always number one, and India, either number two, if you're Mabubani, or number three, if you're Jim O'Neill. But you get the point. What I then did in terms of a research, little small research project was say, well, hold on. Um, where's the transatlantic economy in all this discussion? And, um, well, the transatlantic economy, far from evaporating or becoming almost irrelevant to the point of insignificance, as was implied in at least some of the more extreme narratives <coughs> of power shift, because part of this power shift is away from the transatlantic towards somewhere else, namely Asia. When you start looking at the transatlantic economy, something rather obvious strikes you when you look down through the stats. It still represents the biggest economic block in the world. Now, depending how you use your measurements, and again, I'll leave that to economists to work it out for me. I won't do it myself. It's somewhere between about 40 to 45% of the world economy. That's quite a lot of economy. That's, that's quite a lot of stuff. That's quite a lot of trade. That's quite a lot of foreign direct investment. That's quite a lot of economic clout. Moreover, the transatlantic economy being so rich is a, is a major pull on other economies in the world. It's a massive market and a massive source of FDI to those who have been rising over the last 10 10 years. So it's not quite so insignificant as at least implied. I exaggerate somewhat. But so much focus has been on the rise of Asia, the 21st century being Asian, that perhaps we need to remind ourselves of something really quite dull, which is the transatlantic economy. It's not, it's not interesting stuff to read, believe me. I, just, I have discovered in doing this, by the way, why I'm not an economist. I couldn't do this stuff. But I did it for the purposes of the lecture tonight. <laughs> the same transatlantic block I also discovered, and here I use statistical bulletin on China's 
Overseas Direct Investment 2012 as my source. And boy, that was really a difficult read. Statistical Bulletin on China's ODI 2012. And what this did, however, which I thought was really remarkable and remarkably interesting, I'm listening to the radio telling me largely that China's taking over Britain, indeed the world. Uh, that foreign direct investment coming out of China needs to be stopped at the border, except if they're tourists. <laughs> and there's been a huge stress in recent literature on Chinese overseas direct investment. Accompanying, of course, its enormous growth of world trade, which, which everybody accepts. But I kind of took the view, well, let me have a look at this, and I came across this interesting source, the Statistical Bulletin on China's ODI 2012. I promise I won't say that, okay? It's very interesting. What they did wasn't just do year-on-year overseas direct investment, which tells you one story, not an uninteresting story. What they did was to look at cumulative, cumulative foreign direct investment. That's, That's to say the total amount of overseas direct investment in the world today, in the world economy today. This tells a really interesting story and rather a surprising one for those who think that economic power has shifted eastwards uh, permanently and forever. The biggest source of ODI or foreign direct investment in the world today turns out to be the European Union, about 40% of it, cumulative. The next biggest source is the individual country called the United States of America, about 22%, about the same size as its own economy in GDP terms in global terms. Canada accounts for 6%. Who's ever heard of Canada? Switzerland's about 5%. And according to Chinese statistics, the People's Republic of China, in terms of ODI, constitutes, I couldn't believe the figure, about 2 to 3% of cumulative overseas direct investment. Now, it could well be that in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, long beyond me even coming up here on a Zimmer frame in a few years' time with, with Craig, who will, of course, leap, leap up here, as he, he always does. I'm glad it's clear that we're not in the Zimmer frame together. No, we're not on the Zimmer frame. You're not using my Zimmer frame, Craig, anyway. <laughs> it's quite an interesting story. I mean, it may well be that the future will move somewhere else. Although, again, let me, make a, let me make an obvious observation here. Predicting the future is really, really difficult. And more often than not, we've got it wrong. So why do we believe those who are making unilinear predictions about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? I can't predict whether Arsenal will beat Southampton on Saturday. How does anybody know where the world economy is going to be in the year 2030 or 2040 and 50? point, however, still remains that in terms of sheer volume, we're still talking of a very weighty economic. The same economic block, and I refer to the block not just focused on the US here, the same block is still home to most, not all, but to a lot of rather important world's significant global corporations. Now, in my good old Marxist days, the one thing we looked at was global corporate power. We went round and hunted down these corporations to prove where real power lie, not with these boring politicians sitting up there in Parliament, but the real power in the world was corporate power. Well, I went through a series of tables. I went three sets of tables, Forbes, Fortune, and the Financial Times. Guess what I come up with? I won't give you all the details, but the same transatlantic bloc is still home to most, if not all, of the world's most significant global corporations, global 
corporations, i.e. those who operate globally with global brands. And the same block is also home to two of its most significant international currencies, the dollar being by far, in a way, the most important. As Nixon once famously put it, the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. (laughs) And when 60% of all international exchanges are done through the dollar, that gives the United States still a hell of a lot of importance. What has also not changed, and I'll move on rather quickly here, quite so much as many seem to imply, are three other areas of important power, quickly. Firstly, power is not just about economics and trade. It's not just about how many loans uh, a dollar-rich China can extend to Africa, quite, quite legitimately, of course, or how much you can buy from Australia or Brazil or anywhere else in the world, for that matter. Nobody's underestimating that. Power is also military power, and it's also intelligence power which is something that's come home rather, rather rudely over the last few weeks for a number of people, particularly the German Chancellor. Um, I turned off my phone tonight because I didn't want to be listened to. Well, if we take that, that level of power, again, what comes out there is really something really quite significant. And I'm still one of those old-fashioned IR people who thinks that having lots of aircraft carriers is better than having no aircraft carriers. Having a few F-111s is much better than flying Spitfires. Okay. Having modern American stuff is much better than having old Russian stuff. Um, and particularly one of the Russian things China has purchased, I think, wisely or not, I don't know, is an old aircraft carrier. It took them 10 years to refurbish it. And there was an enormous outpouring of worries and concern in Asia when I was there. And I did point out, well, China's got one, the United States, the Americans, the Yanks have got 11. Okay. Not so bad after all, really. You know. But the point of the matter is, even if you look at the basic stats on global military expenditures, you still end up with the United States spending about half of world military expenditures. Indeed, those flabby Europeans spend about $300 a year, and those nice other Asians who are not China, such as Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, they've got pretty significant militaries as well, and guess who they like? In terms of security, it's the US of A in terms of the security relationship. And the one thing that comes out about the recent scandals about spying, and we can all get into a great lather about that, I suppose, um, and maybe we should, about human rights and spying and all the rest of it. The one thing that demonstrated, it seems to me, in terms of what I'm talking about, is that the United States can do it better than anybody else, because it's got more of it. Indeed, there was a wonderful article, it wasn't wonderful actually, it was very funny, by a man called Max Boots. Max Boots, a kind of an old neocon, well, quite a young neocon, but he acts old. It was in the New York Post, not, not your normal daily reading in New York, Craig, I would have thought. And he said, Yarboo sucks, Germany. The only, thing, the only reason you're mad is because you can't do it as well as we can. Get over it, smell the coffee. Just we spy on you, who cares? You, you could spy on us, but you can't. That's the kind of argument, but it does tell you something about power. And indeed, the high level of dependency that most intelligence agencies and states have on that power as well, on that intelligence power. Uh, And nobody wants to talk about that too loudly in public, particularly our own dear benighted government. There's also questions of cultural and intellectual power. It's not that the West is the only part of the world with ideas. Of course, that's nonsense. I I don't believe that for one second. Um, Indeed, many of the ideas in the West now strike me as being completely bonkers um, somebody once said to me there's more witches in London than there are Trotskyists like, no, think about that for a minute you know, how, many strange, how many strange things are going on in the world at the moment you know? um, 
So I'm not saying the West is a kind of a repository of rationalism and enlightenment thoughts, and we're all walking down Fleet Street talking about the Tocqueville. Not at all. But if we kind of take institutional cultural intellectual power, namely universities, which is a slightly easier measure, you do come up against something which does need to be talked about. Why is it that 89 out of the 100 top universities in the world are either American or exist in Western Europe or exist in the English-speaking world, i.e. the UK, Australia, Canada? It's, it's, a, it's a question. Now, you may say, well, universities don't win wars. But universities do spread influence. Universities are a repository of important knowledge. And that, it seems to me, again, is something one has to deal with quite openly. And then, of course, there's the whole question of institutional power. NATO and the EU are significant, in spite of the EU crisis. And as Robert Wade, a colleague here at the LSE, has shown, the World Bank and the IMF are still being shaped, not only by ideas which were originally historically Western, but also by Europeans and Americans. I then move on quickly. A shift of power. Is it a shift of power? But where to? Russia, one of the BRICs, I would argue Russia's in decline, not the opposite. Brazil, significant, no doubt, no question about its enormous achievements under de Lula and, and its successes and before that. But Brazil, interestingly, is becoming more and more dependent on commodities, which is an interesting way of rising by becoming more and more dependent on, on, on commodities, the sale, the sale of commodities and not of goods. India, we can talk about, of course, and Ramachandra Guha, that uh, wonderful friend who lectured so brilliantly here in 2011, 12 and last week. But Guha, it seems to me, has several reasons, which I think are very valid, arguing why India will not become a superpower. Then, of course, the argument moves on to Asia. Is the, is the power shift to Asia? Now, again, it isn't to underestimate any of the significant economic changes which have brought Asia prosperity and getting people out of poverty, or even the role of China. Nothing is being denied. But when we talk about the rise of Asia, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, what is, what is Asia? And the first thing that strikes me, as, as a non-expert really, but somebody who travels there as much as I can, is that Asia is divided against itself, not united. It has no sense of collective identity. If you think Europeans are divided, try Asia for two weeks. <laughs> it's also a part of the world where two countries, India and China, are rivals, two of the BRICS, where at least two significant countries, the second and third economies of the world, China and Japan, are deeply hostile to each other, and it's getting worse, by the way, and where most states in Asia are most worried about another Asian state, namely China. Hardly sounds like the Asian century. And, by the way, a region in which security still continues to depend on a non-Asian state, namely the United States of America. And then we move on, inevitably, to China, about which I won't say very much, there's been an enormous hype about its rise, hyped most in uh, Martin Jakes's uh, popular, influential book, When China Rules the World, published a few years ago. Second edition came out last year. What is interesting is not that Jakes is now dominating that discussion, although he shaped it to some degree. It's been the important response to this by another wave of scholarship who are not so impressed or at least raise doubts about what you mean by China's rise. David Chamber, Guy de Jonquière, Jonathan Fenby, and I have to add this name on Westad, who's sitting in the audience today, whose book on the Restless Empire tells a rather different story and a different narrative about China's position in the world. 
Its economic importance is undeniable, who, can, who, who gains otherwise? But equally undeniable are a host of problems, debt, regional disparities, dangers of reform. Can it reform? If it does move forward to reform, does it make China more unstable? If it doesn't reform, how long can the Chinese system persist? These are what I would call existential problems for China. And I don't think those same existential problems, if I use that word quite precisely, actually exist for a country like the United States in anything like the same degree. Moreover, though China has had a strong mercantilist push outwards, how many allies, as opposed to trading partners, has it created and generated? And the answer to that, as we all know, is one. But when you have North Korea as an ally, you don't really need any enemies. <laughs> you knew that was coming, didn't you, by the way? That little pause. And more significantly, China has risen, and again this will take us into a larger debate in the Q&A. China has risen for many reasons, largely to do with what the Chinese have achieved. I mean, I'm an internalist on this, there's no question about it. Indeed, I think communism, the communist system in China, is one of the principal reasons why capitalism has been successful in China. We can talk about that. Um, but one of the clear reasons is, is not just Chinese, but it's also international. It has risen in an international system which has been benign. It has risen in an international system which has favoured its rise. It's risen in an international system shaped by America. Now, many Chinese nationalists, indeed like many American nationalists, will never admit of dependency on others or interdependency. This is simply not in their, this is simply not in their, their way of thinking. But the truth of the matter is, as I see it, is that the dependency is two ways. The USA has not only created security on the cheap for China, it has not only mediated potential conflicts in Asia, it has provided a massive market for US, for Chinese goods as well. We constantly talk of China blackmailing America. If anybody wanted to blackmail anybody and could have massive significant effects on Chinese domestic stability, it would be the United States. Of course, I don't think it's going to happen for that question of mutually assured economic destruction. Which brings me then to the very last point, and I'll move very quickly to the end, Craig, the eclipse of the West. I think this is a misuse of words. Uh, maybe because I lived through the Cold War without causing it or bringing it to an end in any significant way, I can claim that. Um, but I, I take the view that 1989 and 1991 was a world historical turning point. In fact, I would take the view that that was not the last great world historical turning point, but one of the great last historical turning points of the last, last few years. The first, and I would call it last serious challenge to the liberal West was defeated. That is what I think happened in 89 to 1991. What followed? Well, what followed was the adoption by many of the newly rising countries we talk of today as being challenges. What, what was, it, was the adoption of Western-style economic principles, admittedly with national characteristics, communist characteristics in China, Indian characteristics in India and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, what happened was the rise of the BRICS by adopting the market, moving towards the market, and market reforms both at home and joining the world market as an economic system. The WTO represented the kind of institutional entry point for most of these countries. This is not to flatten out the world or to make the world flat like Friedman tries to do. The world is not flat. But it is to accept that the structure of the world is more definably Western today than it has ever been. And certainly for those of us who came through the Cold War period, it does feel much more like that than something called the decline of the West or the eclipse of the West. 
insofar as the Soviet Union communism constitutes a genuine challenge to that. Nothing else does, including China, by the way. So the conclusion I arrive at is a simple one I beg to differ. <laughs> I don't believe everything some economists tell you, and don't believe actually what IR people tell you either. We can be equally wrong. But I also want to conclude on two general points. One, maybe we need to change the language of our discourse anyway. We've been so mesmerised, haunted even, by notions of rising and falling. We've read too much Edward Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. We've looked at history through the prism of the rise of Germany, the decline of the British Empire, the decline of Europe, the decline of the Soviet Union. We think in these terms, drawn from 19th and largely 20th century historical analogies. Well, perhaps we need to rethink a bit more. Maybe think much less about some rising, some falling, some gaining, some losing, and maybe think that what we're living in is a far more interdependent world. That is not kind of liberal hype. I think that's a reality. I think that's simply a reality. The second reason I have got engaged in this, and this comes back to a more serious, much more serious point, I think, in the end, is this. I take the view that exaggerated fears about the power of rising states has done nobody any good in the 20th century. Exaggerated fears about the power of Germany was at least one contributory factor to World War I. Exaggerated understandings of Russian military power in 1914 contributed to this. Perceptions and misperceptions of other people's growing power, rising power, declining power, set off insecurities and set off beliefs in new opportunities to be exploited, the outcome of which is often conflict and war. I don't say we're in that situation now. I think we can avoid that situation if we learn the right lessons of history as we normally do the wrong ones but I do think we are in a situation now where exaggerated fears and worries and concerns particularly about the rise of China on the one side and exaggerated concerns and fears about the decline of America on the other are not only empirically challengeable and worrying they, are also, they could easily lead to foreign policy disasters they could lead to misperceptions, misunderstandings, and out of those we could see new insecurities. Not war in a historic sense, but growing conflict. And that is what worries me most, why I challenge the notion that we're seeing a massive power shift which will lead to the ineluctable decline of the West and the ineluctable rise of the rest, particularly China. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mick. This was a terrifically interesting and I think sufficiently provocative set of comments that it should generate a good discussion. We open the floor to questions from the audience and ask people seeking to question to give their name and affiliation and wait for the stewards with the red shirts and roving microphones. Anyone want to go first? All right, in the top just next to you. Yep, that's right. Uh, Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. Uh, during the last four decades, the U.S. has become more and more reliant on foreign debt to run its empire. Do you think this can go on forever? 
<laughs> well, that would partly... I'll be, I'll be brief on that one, because it's a great question, and it would require a much longer answer than one I'm going to provide. The debt is invariably held in dollars, first and foremost. So I go back to Nixon's old adage... It's my currency. It's your problem. If those dollar values stay up, you stay up. If those dollar values go down, you go down with it. You know, if you hold the reserve currency of the world, and we see no alternative to that at the moment, then, you know, it, it gives the United States huge leverage. Moreover, you've got to ask the question, why so many foreigners want to hold U.S. debt? You know, it's the flight to safety. It's the, it's the, flight, it's, it's the flight to a kind of certain environment. When any, everything gets unsafe in the world, what do people do? They fly to safety. And if you ask the specific question, say, about China, well, it does hold, of course, some degree of U.S. Treasury bonds, as you well know, quite a large amount, about, I think, something of the order of about a trillion, isn't it? Quite a large amount, anyway. But why does it hold it? And that's the real question. Does it want to hold it, as some Republicans on the right would suggest, to blackmail America? Yeah, to pull it out at that moment, you know, when they're going to vote Republican or something. Or is it largely they hold, they, hold, they hold these dollars and that U.S. debt because they want to hold up the U.S. economy and they want to keep the U.S. economy moving along nicely. And by holding up the U.S., they also hold up their own economy. You know, we get back into the kind of the wonderful logic of mutual capitalism here. And that's why a lot of people will hold the, the debt. I frankly, and this is my own take on this, and I totally disagree here, as you may have guessed by now, with Neil Ferguson. Nice man though he is. Um, and he is a nice man in some ways. Um, I disagree with him politically, but personally he's a very nice chap. Don't put it like that. Neil basically thinks that a, a state in debt cannot be a superpower. I just don't see that logic, because if people hold the debt of the United States, that actually is an in, in, it seemed to me an, an interesting economic indicator about American power and, and about American attractiveness and why, why foreigners would want to hold that debt. And I've, never, I've heard the argument for a long, long time, but it seems to me this is, in some sense, is a sign of the strength of the US economy in the heart of the global economy, rather than a sign of weakness. Next, yeah, down in the front here. Hello, my name is Jan. I'm a student in London. Thank you very much for your a very interesting lecture. Okay. You mentioned the, the dominance of uh, Western universities, and I was wondering if you could maybe say something about the state of universities in China. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me a question about the LSE then. I'm glad you didn't. Um, but we're in, great, we're in great shape. We're in great shape. We're in great shape. <laughs> we're in very, very good shape. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you, Craig. Thank you. Who said I was a groveling academic? <laughs> we always talk truth to power, you know. Yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Who believes that? Um, well, look, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not a China expert. I, I only visit the country twice a year. I talk to as many people who are Chinese as possible. From the top to the bottom, I get my good friend Arnie to do a lot of translating for me. I keep my eyes open and I look around. That's all I do. Uh, that's the most I can do, given my linguistic failings and other things. And I don't go there and I don't live there enough. Though that is not a precondition for actually understanding a country. I've known lots of people who've lived in, who lived in certain countries who seem to have no idea at all about what's going on there. Because they get used to it. And once you get used to something, you kind of don't see things. That's a real problem. Actually, your best impressions are sometimes the first ones, just like with people, I suppose. Okay, it, just going back onto, the, onto China, these are the stats and what the deeper explanations are. 
What the deeper explanations are, you could, you, we, could, we could discuss. Um, in that top 100 uh, of universities within the PRC mainland China, that's to say mainland China, to be distinguished, say, from Hong Kong here for the moment, uh, there are two, two top universities. and they're bo- Actually, they're both on the su- same side of the main road. They're on different sides of the same main road, you know, keeping it intimate. You've got Beidar on one side, which uh, Craig mentioned, PKU, and there's Tsinghua on the other, and this is where the elite is essentially trained. Um, you know, this is, this is where most of the key figures in the party and the MFA and many, many others have come from and have been trained through. I mean, this, this is a, PKU in particular has an extraordinary status within, within the Chinese system, which I, I don't think has ever been reproduced in any other country to anything like the same degree. It both has iconic as well as great status for power and politics. There are other universities um, within what you might call the Chinese area, but the other, the other two or three of those, and Arnie Westad knows something about this, is in Hong Kong. So it's interesting why Hong Kong actually has the equal number, if not more, ranked universities than the whole, the whole of China with its 1.23 billion people. There are many, many good universities in China, no doubt, engineering and all the rest of it. And you know, literacy in China is something to be admired. And if you speak to Indian friends and colleagues, they'll say, I wish I had China's problems when it comes to literacy. And China has, in a sense, almost solved the fundamental problem of literacy and great education at all sorts of levels. There's no doubt about it. Very, very impressive. But when you look in the world rankings, it doesn't figure. Now, you may say these world rankings are unfair. They're constructed by Westerners and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but let me just further two possible explanations. There are many, many more. And others have written about this, by the way, so I'm not making it up. One is, that, is, is, is in essence, I suppose, that let's be perfectly frank, it's all about politics. I mean, the truth of the matter is that politics shapes China in ways that nobody in a liberal democratic world or people, people lived in the old Soviet Union would understand this, and that's why I think I sometimes understand China quite well, because it feels a little bit sometimes like the Soviet Union with Chinese and capitalist characteristics. But they're, they're, you know, the party rules. I mean, it is a massive, powerful influence on the campus, and you can't get away from that. Now, sometimes it's very subtle, sometimes it doesn't intrude, but it does keep people very careful. This is particularly true, I think, in the social sciences. There's a party line. So I'm not saying that you can't have any discussions within the Chinese Communist Party. You clearly can. But I do think it acts as some form of obstacle. The other thing, which is a more general problem, maybe for Asia more generally, and others have written about this, is the question of rote learning. You know, the exam focus. Um... I mean, I get annoyed if my students agree with me. Well, actually, I like it when they agree with me sometimes. Uh, like, you're all agreeing with me tonight, you know. But over, over, overwhelmingly, there is a sense within China, I find anyway, and maybe more true in Asia, that's a bit of a generalisation, in which rote learning, getting through the exams, not engaging critically with the professor, etc., 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 does make a big difference. The other thing in China, to be perfectly honest, there is censorship. And getting access to all the journals you want freely and openly and the use of the internet freely and openly, that's a very difficult thing to do in China. And again, that kind of re- re- you know, reduces. And this is something that I think the Chinese leadership is going to have to sort out because it's going to be a source of its, of its own, own economic problems over the long term, in my view. Okay. okay. I'm watching. That's okay. He's one of my students. Uh, good evening. So, Hi there. Uh, How are you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm fine. So um, I'm a student now studying the ideas, so I have uh, many conversations with Professor Cox. Are you one of the ones who agrees with him or disagrees? 
<laughs> well, uh, let me be very frank, because as a Chinese, I would say uh, the lecture given by Professor Cox this evening is, um, I think on, on one hand it will help to, uh, re- it will, on the one hand it will help the Western people to regain the confidence that they have been holding for a long time. <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, I think it will also help to um, let uh, many or at least um, part of Chinese people to get calmed down because um, I know very well that uh, within China now there's uh, a certain part of people, they, they also believe that uh, uh, the future is rest on China. And uh, they will, they will be, certainly be number one. And also, I think, from the uh, attitudes or manners um, of those Chinese tourists uh, abroad, you can, you can feel that um, kind of sense. So um, uh, my question uh, is mainly about uh, the, the world system. Because I think Professor Cox mentioned that China's rising is now within the system that uh, has been that was shaped by U.S. and its Western allies. Mm. So my question is: uh, To what extent uh, can this uh, system uh, accommodate to China's rising? Yeah. Or uh, we can say, um, how uh, how much flexibi- um, how much flexibilities or space could this system give? To China's rise, yeah, and uh, because um, as I see, there maybe there's only two futures. One is um, China tries, uh, if it goes to a certain extent, it will be a kind of um, conflict or, or even violent conflict, mm. like world wars, to mm. change the structure. Or the other is then the other choice would be the system has to do has to maybe give up something to accommodate China's rise. So yeah. what? What do you see that? Thank, Thank you very much, Faye. That's great. Thank you very much for your nice comments at the beginning, too. Um, and, and in part, what you said is exactly... I mean, all, all knowledge has a purpose. We, we never have knowledge for no purpose. And in a sense, I have a purpose. I'm quite open about that. And that purpose is not only to get better into understanding between peoples and states, but also to have correct analysis upon which to make correct decisions. And misperceptions and, and, uh, can create all sorts of dangers. Uh, and I think this has certainly been true on both the Chinese side. I'll be blunt about that. You know my views on that. I think many in China, not the majority necessarily, but a few in China, possibly more, read the 2008 financial crisis as, in a sense, signaling the decline of the United States. And if uh, the others are in, if the US is in decline, then take the opportunity and push hard. I think there are other reasons why China in a sense, began to act, quote-unquote, more assertively. I think there were real problems in the foreign policy-making in China as well. It was a cock-up as much as it was about China's rise. And there were other things, and maybe that will be reversed very, very, very soon. So my, 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 my writing and thinking about this is with a purpose. It always is, and it should be. Uh, social science should never be divorced from solutions. I think Craig has made that point really well about, about the role of the LSE. We're here not only to study, but to think hard, and to think hard about big problems, and think hard about big problems, so the big problems don't become worse. Um, now, and they could become worse. Things can always get worse, as my mother used to say. Uh, <laughs> fine Irish woman that she was. Um, look, I think there's two issues uh, in, in answer to your question. One is about 
U.S. allies, and the other one is about the United States. It's both about U.S. allies in the region. It's also about the United States. The United States is as much a solution as it is a problem. It's as much a problem as it can be a solution, as we well know. Uh, we've seen many problems created by the United States, both during the Cold War. It wasn't unalloyed joy and support for democracy and human rights around the world. Ask the people of Chile. Um, ask the people of Indonesia. The United States supported the 30-year brutal dictatorship in Indonesia, and thank goodness that's gone. The United States makes all sorts of, makes all sorts of mistakes and does all sorts of ridiculously stupid things, and, 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 and nothing more stupid than the Iraq war, frankly. Uh, but the United States has got to be part of this deal, part of this debate, and part of this. Now, in that sense, the U.S. has to, in a sense, make a what I would call a major, a major intellectual shift. It's got to be able, at least even if it is not in decline, it's got to accept that other powers have voices, um, that other powers not only need a voice, but other powers demand a voice and legitimately need that voice. And it can't just be an American form of consultation which it has often been in the past. What's your view? Send me a note, would you? Send me an email, P.S. My view is, thank you for that, that's consultation. It's got to be real. Uh, the table won't change, but maybe the chairs in the table have to be rearranged somewhat. This demands quite a big movement from the United States, however, because the United States, frankly, has been the dominant power for the last 50, 60 years. And getting off that, getting off that hegemonism, getting off the identity which comes with that. After all, if you've been number one for 50 years, you start thinking you are number one, and in some ways America is. But you've got to, making that movement towards accepting a kind of, not a reduced role, but a different kind of role in the world, I think it's extraordinarily difficult. And, um, and by, when an election comes around, it becomes even more difficult. Are you saying America's in decline, Obama? No, 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 honestly. Believe me. You know, I mean, <laughs> are, you, are you selling us we're not number one anymore? Yo, USA, you know. I mean, you know the point. I mean, there is a, sorry, great accent, by the way. <laughs> There's a huge identity. It's, it's, it's American exceptionalism. Um, and part of that exception is now bound up with its power. Now, Americans are beginning to kind of come to terms with a new reality, I think, as we see in, in all sorts of other. So I think the first issue is going to be how the United States does this. The, I mean, this is going to be the key. I'd, like to, I'd really like to think the EU will play a key role in all this, and to some degree they can play a role, but I think it's going to be secondary, largely, in this, in this new shaping world order, which America has to accept. The other thing is, I, I, really got, I think the United States has got to be very, very careful, and I mean this with all due respect, to Japan and South Korea and, and other countries in the region, the United States has got very, be very, very careful about not allowing allies to draw it in to confrontational situations. I think the US should give and does provide guarantees to South Korea, to, to others in the region, um, but I think it's got to be extraordinarily careful not to let the demands of allies and guarantees to others draw it into an increasing security dilemma. Remember, the First World War began with a guarantee. <laughs> Serbia. It began, and the Second World War began with a guarantee to Poland. Now, I'm, I think those guaran guarantees to Poland, at least, were right. I'm not so sure about the first one. Uh, the, the, sec the Cold War began with a guarantee, largely to Eastern Europe, maybe correctly so. But guarantees to other states can draw great powers into conflict, and that, I think, is a real issue. And America's got to be very, very careful on that. Not to, be, not to be wagged by its allies in the region. All right, let's go up here, Amanda Gray Sweater. Where's Amanda Gray Sweater? 
Oh, my name is uh, Mark, and I'm a former international relations student. Um, Michael, thanks very much for your thought-provoking talk today. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you think that if China was to, in the near future, decide to float their renminbi and offer a range of treasury bonds like the U.S. currently does, do you think that that would serve as a catalyst for an economic power shift and ultimately a global power shift? I didn't get. I did, sorry, I didn't hear the very first part. If it was to float, it's, if it was to float its currency and ah. offer treasury bonds like the U.S. does. Okay, look, I, I'm getting on very thin economic ice here, but who cares? Let me go. Let me skate over that one. It's only like the London School of Economics. And political science. Remember that. Remember that. You should remember that one, Craig. Look, I, I, all I can do is tell you what I am told by the experts, okay? This is what I'm told by the experts. Uh, this talk about floating the RMB, uh, RMB, to make it a fully convertible currency has been talked about a long time. And until China floats the, the, the RMB to make it fully convertible, um, it will always, there will always be limits, essentially, on, on its economic power and all sorts of other things. However, what I'm also told by people like Guy de jean and Sean Breslin up at Warwick and a whole bunch of other people who know ten times more about China than I do, this is going to be really difficult to do because you'll start losing control over your domestic economy. Point one. Point two, you can't just float the renminbi without going through massive banking reform, a massive rescheduling of all sorts of debt in China as well. I was, we had a wonderful conference on this over the weekend, by the way, and everybody, and no, nobody was anti-China or China bashing, you know, but I mean, you know, they made the point, and which has been made in the recent plenum, that to move towards rebalancing, reform, etc., etc., et one part of which will be the flotation of the renminbi to an international country, will be hugely difficult. Hugely difficult. And as far as I can see, and all I'm doing here is repeating what others have said, um, it's going to take a very, very, very long time indeed because it will demand a set of reforms which could A, destabilise the system and B, challenge those who are currently in power. Because those currently in power are those who would have to implement the reform. If they have to implement the reform, they may be the ones who are the losers because it will then lead to a loosening up increasing marketization of what at the moment is a state, a state, a state, state well, not a state economy completely, but it would undermine that. So there's all sorts of difficulties with that. That is what the experts are telling me. And so therefore, it's, it's a theoretical mission. But to get from A to that point, you'd have to go through an enormous number of difficult stages. And many take the view that at the end of the day, the Chinese leadership, rightly or wrongly, I'll leave that up to them to decide, don't interfere into the internal affairs of other states and all that. Uh, the fundamental point is it will be up to the Chinese to make that decision. My view is the Chinese leadership is more preoccupied with stability than it is with massive, potentially destabilizing reform. Stability, stability. They saw the Soviet Union collapse. They came out of a revolutionary upsurge which created the Chinese People's Republic in 1949. They went through the, through the great cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. This, I think, is a leadership which has been extraordinarily successful. And by the way, China's been a great partner for the West for the last 25 years. That's my view. But I think stability for them is actually the priority. And that may indeed preclude such, such reforms, including that one. Okay, to, let's go to the back row up here and to head off a conflict. Both of the men who raised their hands oh should gosh. ask questions. 
Oh, right. Is it, is it a joint question? We're, we're arguing about uh, who would ask the question, but I said he was older than me. He could go first. Oh, right. <laughs> but, okay. he, uh, but, he, but he denied it. But he denied, <laughs> he denied he was older. <laughs> um, thanks for the provocative lecture. Good. It was provocative, and I've been sitting here trying to search for loopholes. Good. <laughs> I haven't found any yet, but... That's, two, that's a good question. I yeah, two right. uh, quick, quickies. Energy. Mm. Um, our government's worried about the security of energy with regard to Russia turning on and off the taps. <laughs> so that's something that will threaten us, potentially. Mm. Minerals. China's buying up rights to minerals all over Russia, um, Africa and res- um, rewarding the leaders rather than the people. That's an issue that uh, I think could concern us in the future. And the third thing, um, your expertise on China. Mm. What, do you, what thoughts do you have about Bo Shalai and <laughs> the results from that? Is he going to just fade to grey? Did you know or... Bo Shalai? No, 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 I didn't know Bo Shalai. So I can't... I have no... Well, let, let, me, let me deal with the last question first. I have no idea. I think that's the, sim- that's the simplest, most straightforward and honest answer I can provide. Let me just deal more generically, however, with the question of energy. Um, China's energy needs are just vast. I mean, <laughs> you know, you think everybody else has got energy problems. You, th- you think us poor Europeans worrying about the Russians turning off the spigot to stop the gas coming through, you think we've got problems. My goodness me. You look at China's demands of energy, its needs for energy... Uh, this economy has grown by 10, 9, 8, 7.5%, whichever statistics you believe. Frankly, I don't believe all the statistics, by the way, but that's another question. Um, with that sort of growth, 1.3 billion people, you know, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, there's a huge growth there. And that growth has come about, as many have pointed out, which, of course, I've not denied. That demands great energy. And it does have some oil companies, there's no doubt it has its own oil companies. But the energy problem for China strikes me as vast. It's just huge. I mean, first of all, the major source of energy it's got at the moment is coal. And uh, it's trying to move over to something else, like nuclear. But, and this creates massive problems, uh, in, in, in terms, not only in terms of climate change, which is a problem for all of us, by the way, but simply in terms of health. Arnie Westad and I go to Beijing in August, about the worst time of the year to go to Beijing, by the way. And, you know, it's the only, it's the only city I live in for two weeks where I might as well smoke because it's healthier than breathing the air. Um, I mean, it, and by the way, this is not just a joke because actually life expectancy in northern China as a result of industrial pollution, according to Chinese statistics, are about four or five years less than those living in southern China or in other parts of China. And so this is a huge problem for them. The second thing is, of course, in terms of energy, and talking specifically here about China, the US, I think, is in a much stronger position on energy, by the way. And if you want to talk about that, we can. You know, it can import, it's got its own stuff and it's going to get more, the shale gas revolution, fracking and all that. Secondly, it can import stacks of the stuff, by the way. Guess where? Canada. And guess where? Venezuela. They ain't very far away. And, you know, even under Chavez, you know, he he was quite prepared to sell that stuff. So America's energy position strikes me as being relatively secure. China, however, depends a hell of a lot, not only on its own resources, but getting the stuff from the Middle East. And now it's having all sorts of issues on that. And then, of course, it's then turning to Russia. Now, and the Russians, although they're keen on this at one level, are not so keen at another. And would you like to become dependent on Russia? Because one day, if there's, a, say, a conflict between China and Russia, guess what Mr. that nice Mr. Putin might do? Oh, I think we'll just turn his little dip off. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, it's, it's been done before. And so, you know, either dependency on, the, on an unstable region like the Middle East or... 
or, or a potential rival such as Russia strikes me as a, a really problematic energy position uh, to be in. Uh, Dr. Cox, thank, uh, Professor Cox, thanks for your lecture. Um, you mentioned it towards the end uh, that you suggested we should maybe think in different terms about the whole uh, problem. I'm wondering what are we really afraid about and why is that so relevant to talk about uh, the decline of the West and the rise of the rest of China. Why is that relevant? Um, I guess it has to do with well-being in the West and that we fear for the well-being of people in the West or maybe to become second-class citizens at some point in time. No, no, no. no. Um, shouldn't we rather think about the future, the challenges which are there and how well. we can solve these challenges together with China? Well, I, A, I agree entirely with what you just said in your last, last comment, but why should, why should we worry about all this? I mean, I thought some of the things I was saying were futurological without making any rash predictions, but uh, be that as it may. Um, of course this matters. It matters hugely. I mean, it's difficult to know. It, say the US-China relationship goes wrong. Let's just say that. Or just say there is a small but significant military conflict in, over, the, over the Senkaku and Dayu Islands. Or let's just say a Chinese battleship bumps into a Japanese destroyer, or whatever. Suddenly we're seeing a significant part of the world economy facing some major conflict. And, you know, economics shapes a lot of things, but in the end these kinds of issues of conflict, territoriality, lack of trust in Asia represents a significant challenge both to the economic prosperity of that region and by definition to the rest of the world economy. I mean, I don't understate the rise of Asia. I'm simply trying to put it in some larger perspective, which doesn't write off the transatlantic and doesn't write off the Western economies and doesn't overstate China's rise. I mean, it's, it's kind of to reassure people in a sense, not to make you happy, but I don't want to do that. Um, so if the Asian, if, if you get that kind of scenario, then you are in real troubles. Don't forget about this time last year, a very famous, well-known, respected journalist in, uh, in the Financial Times, Gideon Rackman, wrote a piece saying Asia's at its 1914 moment. Now, I thought that was utter rubbish. Nonetheless, it carries weight in where people think about the world. You know, they start thinking in those kinds of terms, even if I think it's empirical nonsense. Germany is not China. Europe in 1914 is not Asia in 2014 or 2013. It's a different world. Move on, Gideon. Yet, nonetheless, that carries weight. That has an influence on the way people think about things. And if that goes down, if things happen, then it's not going to have not only deleterious effects on the lives of ordinary Asian people, it's going to have a massive impact on the, on the world economy. That's why it's important. You know, and at the end of the day, the United States and China, however much one talks about the decline of the United States, which I don't actually, or an exaggerated view about the rise of China, which I think has been exaggerated in some writing, nonetheless... These are the two great powers who, it seems to me, are either destined to cooperate or destined to conflict. And I think we could work out means and ways of managing the rise of China, managing America's relationship with China, managing America's relationship with its own allies in the region, and China's relationship with Japan, which they need to get right sooner rather than later. If you don't, 
You're on a kind of a spiral, which doesn't lead you to a 1914 or a 1939, but does lead you into some very troubling waters. And if those waters become more than troubling, the waves start to get higher and higher and higher. Misunderstanding rises. Security dilemmas kick in. And once you're in a security dilemma, as we found in the Cold War, it's damn difficult to get out of it. Moreover, it will have some massive economic consequences as well. So, you know, the world is at stake here. You know, and that is why I think we intervene into this world with what I hope is reasonable, accurate and balanced analysis because we want to make the future a better place for ourselves and for our children and indeed for my grandchildren okay. as well. That's a, a good note here. And I want to ask a last question, though, Nick, before we end this, because you've, you've spoken about major con- Potential. Potential conflicts, the need to avoid them, but also the extent to which conflict organizes the world. You've given some predictions, but you've also spoken about the difficulty with predictions. And I want to, to go back to one of them and just ask, are you really not willing to hazard a prediction as to whether Arsenal can beat Southampton? <laughs> Well, that's such an unfair question from a Manchester United supporter. However, I I will answer that in two ways. Firstly, the cufflinks I am wearing this evening uh, have the Arsenal's insignia on it, just in case. For all Gooners out there, all five of you, all ten of you. And yes, I will hazard a prediction, 2-0.